What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Chatted Up Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Shooter, bringing you interviews, news interviews about all things Upper Peninsula of Michigan. We've got another great episode for you here, so we're going to just hop right into it, and we'll start things off with This Day in Uper History, which is brought to you by the good folks at Pasty.com. That's P-A-S-T-Y dot com and the Pasty Central Facebook page. So here is May 7th. This day in Uper history. Pasty Central Day in History, May 7th. On this day in 1965, in the Straits of Mackinac, the steamer Cedarville was moving full speed toward the Mackinac Bridge with its captain and 54-member crew. Only a second ship showed on the radar when suddenly the captain of the other vessel warned of a third ship ahead of them. Despite frantic evasive maneuvers, a Norwegian freighter emerged through the fog and struck the Cedarville inside. A last-minute dash for shallow water failed, and Lake Huron claimed the 588-foot Cedarville as it capsized and went down in 120 feet of water. Several crew were trapped in the engine room. Others died in the frigid straits, and all ten lives were lost in the shipwreck of the Cedarville on this day in 1965. Pasty Central Day in History, May 7th. All right, another big thank you to the folks over at Pasty.com and the Pasty Central Facebook page for making that segment possible. It's time for this week's interview, and it's with a friend of mine, Dr. Kip Petrantonio. Dr. Kip is a psychiatrist and an assistant professor at the University of Texas Southwestern, and I've known Kip uh, since we were kids. And uh, I recently saw that he had done a presentation for Yale Medical School um, with stress management techniques for healthcare workers that are on the front lines of COVID-19. And that kind of got my gears turning because obviously with everybody kind of stuck at home and in quarantine and just all of the uncertainty in these unprecedented times that we're in, um, you know, mental health is is definitely a hot topic and an important topic. So uh, I reached out to Kip and asked him if he'd sit down and chat with me, and thankfully he obliged. So as I always say, I will uh, let our interview do the talking for itself. So without further ado, let's chat it up. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with a, a good friend of mine from, from way back, Mr. Kip Petrantonio. Kip, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. Uh, I appreciate you sitting down uh, to chat with me um, from way down in Texas. Um, so uh, we'll just jump right into things here. So uh, as I mentioned, you and I go way back. So you're you're born and raised here in Iron Mountain, right? Sure was. I was born right in Dickinson County Hospital, <laughs> 1985. Yeah, and you and I are the same age, so so we and you know ran in very similar circles. Um, yeah. When you think of of growing up. Here in Iron Mountain, what are some like big memories or favorite stories? Yeah. That you have? Well, let me ask you that. Like, growing up in the UP is a weird place. I mean, isn't it? It's a it's a strange thing to do. Uh, it's like nobody else has that experience, and a, you know, in a way, it's a, it's growing up in a super rural area. And so, um, the fo- now first, I, I'd like to say I know most people listening to this are probably huge Uper fans, and I don't want to come off as like a self-hating Uper. <laughs> So that's, that's not my goal here, but so I'm going to say some hard stuff about the UP and then I'm going to swing around and talk about how I think it, it helped a lot. 
so you know a lot of a lot of my memories had to do with kind of boredom and not because you know it was like I didn't live an exciting life or anything it's that there's just not a lot to do so you end up doing a lot of the same things over and over and over again in the UP uh, so you know it's like I must have ate 5,000 meals at Taco Bell <laughs> in Iron Mountain as a high schooler because it was the only thing open you know after 10 o'clock at night and so it was something to do and I mean it would be to the point where I think we were all so desperate you drive by Taco Bell just to see if people were there right (laughs) and so you know a lot of my a lot of my high school memories are like sitting in Taco Bell taking Taco Bell up to the Iron Mountain Pine Pine Mountain ski jump and like climbing up the ski jump and eating food up there and talking with people (laughs) you know I have a lot of good memories Uh, one of your former guests Kyle Bloomquist uh, I have a lot of good memories with him you know me him and Brian Taff riding bikes you know just we would go through literally a routine on our bicycles where we would go to basketball camp in the morning leave basketball camp, ride to like Hardee's, get a, get a $1 cheeseburger and then ride and like hit the exact same spots every single <laughs> day. We were like an obsessive compulsive person, you know, it'd be like, okay, we're going to go to on cue, which then <laughs> yeah. I forgot about on cue, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like, it'd be like, we'd look at the same albums, look at the same stickers, look at, you know, and then be like, Hey, one day I'm going to buy this, you know, and it'd be like a big event. I remember we'd go to family video and we'd rent like the same video games like we must have we must have rented uh wwe no mercy for nintendo 64 <laughs> oh i don't know 500 times uh well you know and we probably paid more out of rental fees for that video game than it actually cost to purchase it straight out you know uh so you know a lot of the memories with that um one thing i remember that was that was really fun is you know the, uh, east kingsford bridge the ek bridge yes so this, of course, became like a very notorious place in the uh, Upper Peninsula later on because there was a shooting out there But yeah, um, a number of years ago. But, you know, when I was a kid, you'd go out there and you'd, you'd, there was two big bridges to jump off in, the, <laughs> in our area. One was Badwater Bridge, right? Yeah. And then there was the much more, at, like many things, Kingsford had a little bit bigger and a little bit better version. <laughs> you know, so Kingsford had the, the bigger bridge that you could jump off and it had several tiers you could select from and I remember being out there and uh every once in a while and it's got I don't know if you ever did you ever jump off that bridge I did I did not all the way from the very top but uh, I I climbed out uh climbed out on the beams pretty high and, and mm-hmm. jumped from there but I never had enough gumption to to go all the way from the very top of the the train trestle was there uh was there like legendary stories of people doing backflips and stuff off of it yeah, I remember the time I was out there, there was an older kid who was like smoking cigarettes and stuff who was who thought was like super cool at the time. Yeah. Um, but now you look back and was probably like a shady character. But yeah, I remember he was like doing flips and stuff and he was wearing shoes because when you jump from high enough, like you want to have shoes on or you hurt your feet. So I, I remember I remember seeing people kind of doing dives and, and flips off of certain parts. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah, because I remember there was this there was this like legendary older kid. Who, uh, yeah. So there was like David Furno, who was in our class. And then he had two brothers and his oldest brother who like no one ever actually met because he was so much older, but we like knew he was in the ethos somewhere. There was all these like legendary stories that he was like a pro snowboarder and everything. Yeah. And like, oh yeah, he did a triple backflip off the top of EK bridge. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you know, these things you just tell each other constantly. Yeah. There's like probably no validity to it at all, but <laughs> you, anyway. You, 
you brought up a really good point when you were kind of describing what you remember of the the repetitive nature or or rituals i guess you could say of of your childhood because i, I feel like a lot of what i remember is the same and it, maybe it's from a, a lack of other things to do but there was very much ritual like you would always do this on this day or go here or see these people and yeah. I don't know if that's unique to the, the UP, but it's definitely something that, that I relate to, to what you're saying. Yeah. I, and I think it comes from, um, I think it, it come in a way, I think it's what makes people conservative there, you know, because it's, and I don't mean politically conservative. I just mean the, the way people think mm -hmm. is that you, you've done the same thing every year in the same way and you've eaten at the same places. And like, there is this like discomfort for change. Mm -hmm. that I think can naturally come about from that. And uh, in a lot of ways, I think that's really good is it keeps like traditions alive and keeps place, you know, it's like, it's amazing that I can still go eat at the A&W on the North side, Yes, you know, <laughs> and it's been going since before I was born and it'll be probably going after I'm gone too, right. you know? <laughs> uh, which is wonderful. And at the same time, I think it, it creates some challenges uh, growing up there as well. But uh, one more thing on the EK bridge is the story, the big story I wanted to tell or whatever is I remember every once in a while a train would come across that bridge. Yes. Right? And so, you, you know, it'd be kind of cool because you're like standing there like looking up at a train. It was very, um, what was that movie? Like Stand By Me. Similar yeah. kind of thing happens, <laughs> right? Where you're looking up and you see the train and everything. Uh, and I remember, you know, I don't know if you guys ever did this out in Kingsford, but we would, we would jump on the trains and like hang on and ride them like alongside. So they would have ladders on the side of the trains. Yeah. You know, one of the daring things you would do is like a little boy was like a little, <laughs> you know, scrap or whatever would be to like run and jump and hang on for a little bit and ride the train for a little while. I can't so, say I ever did that. So props to you. So yeah, so maybe, maybe, maybe there's little kids at Iron Mountain talking about the legends of, you know, Iron Mountain kids doing that back in the day, but we would do that. Well, and sometimes you could, you know, you'd say you'd hang on for like 30 seconds and then jump off and, you know, it was kind of fun or whatever. But one day when we were up at that EK bridge, I remember that I jumped on a ladder and it just so happened that this ladder actually climbed and went on top of the train, which usually okay. they just went straight up and you couldn't do anything. You just hand, but actually went on top of the train. So I climbed and I actually went on top of the train <laughs> and I started, and I literally Indiana Jones style, like ran and jumped from car to car on a <laughs> train on the ek bridge so that that's always like whenever people you know they you go to a meeting and they're like tell us a fact that no one would know about you i always say like yeah i ran on top of a train indiana jones style you know? <laughs> so that was probably like my favorite memory uh from the up but anyway uh, yeah it's a, it was a it was a good place to grow up but i think you know by the time i was you know 18 19 years old i was like i want to leave yeah and, and i felt very much the same um, and, and you and I ended up both going to school downstate. I was at Central. Um, you ended up heading to Grand Valley. Besides just wanting to kind of get out of the UP, I guess, what kind of led you towards Grand Valley? Well, so part of it is like, um, so I don't, I don't know how much you know about like my family or anything, Scott, but you know, like I was, I was pretty low income growing up. I was not like a wealthy kid or anything. I, I hung out with a lot of wealthy kids, but <laughs> I definitely was not wealthy myself, so you know, my dad was disabled and my mom's a substitute teacher. So, you know, my college literacy was pretty low. It, it was literally like I picked my college because I heard Grand Rapids was like a cool city. Sure. 
and that was about it. It wasn't like I was like, oh, Grand Valley, I'm gonna, you know, it was kind of like, I remember going on the Grand Valley webpage and being like, after I had already gotten in and being like, okay, now what should I major in? <laughs> you know, which now having worked at many prestigious colleges and stuff, it makes me like cringe. It's like, where was my, where was my high school counselor who's supposed to be guiding me, you know, in this process? Um, but, you know, so it was it was really random. But, yeah, I definitely wanted to get out of the UP and I wanted to get to a more cultured place, which, uh, you know, it, I think it served its purpose, definitely. So Yeah, absolutely. So I guess then I know you studied psychology and sociology. What kind of drew you towards that field of study? Was that something that was random or did you kind of have like a something that drew you to it? Well, I Here's where, and this is where I'll, I'll connect the deprivation piece that I was talking about from being in the UP is I think you get really good, and Scott, you're, you're exceptional at this as well, is you get really good at talking to people because that's naturally what you have to do. And, uh, you know, at Iron Mountain, we didn't have a psychology class. We, I think we had a sociology class, but it was like, it was actually geography. <laughs> like, was it, it wasn't so, you know, it wasn't studying like Karl Marx or anything like that, you know? Uh, and it, it's also, I always think it's weird that in high school, when you think of like social studies, what do you think of? Uh, mostly like geography, you know, <laughs> like looking at maps and that type of stuff. <laughs> or like, or like, it's like history. Yeah. Right? Or history. Yeah. History for sure. Weird because neither of those things are, I mean, they're so, they're not really social studies. When you think about like, when you think about a social science, it's like anthropology, psychology, sociology, which we really didn't have. And so, you know, I actually was a pretty average student. I was, I guess I was a little above average, you know, I was good enough where I was making the, the honors club or whatever it was, but like, sure. I was definitely not the smartest kid in my class at all, or even in the top, you know, 20% or anything like that. Um, so, you know, and the reason for that was because I was never that great at math or science you know, in the traditional, like, especially math, that was not my forte. So it's like, you know, if you're forced to take a math class and it's pretty much a guaranteed B for you, yeah. you know, you're just not going to be one of those top kids. So, you know, that, I think that affected me. Um, and I, maybe the same thing happened to you, Scott, but like, I never, I never felt um, like I was especially smart or anything. Like I was kind of like, oh man, if I can get through college, that would be amazing. So, <laughs> It affected what we call, like, I guess we call in psychology, my self-efficacy, which is my belief of what I could do, mm -hmm. you know? And I don't know, was that, was that your experience at all? Or were you kind of a genius from the, from the out front? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't consider myself a genius or anything even close to it. Um, yeah. I, I've always felt relatively smart. Um, school was never, uh, I, I never felt super challenged. I mean, there were some courses that I took that were like really tough. Um, but I was kind of in the same boat as you. I was never particularly strong in like math and science type stuff. Mm -hmm. That was the type of stuff that I really kind of had to work at, but uh, other stuff, I, I don't know if, if it just kind of came naturally to me. Um, yeah. it, it, it never really felt, um, necessarily all that hard. Um, but I guess I was always just kind of fine with being like an, you know, a B kind of average student, um, yeah. I probably didn't apply myself as, as, as much as I really could have, especially yeah. in college. I mean, by the time I got to college, it was like, okay, if I can still party like four, four yeah. or five days a week, you know, like still go out. And if I can keep A's and B's like, great, you know, <laughs> Yeah. So I think that, you know, just going back to your question, I think that um, when I 
when I got to Grand Valley, I, you know, I didn't know I was originally going to be a journalism major, you know, and that's, that's what I started off as is, and, you know, I think I had this cool idea in my head that I was going to be like this investigative journalist who came in, like went into business, you know, or worked at the news or something like that. And then when I realized like journalism is literally like going places and writing down what you see, that wasn't as interesting to me. Sure. And so I took a psychology class, which I, you know, I had never taken at that point, And it just clicked immediately for me. Uh, and I started being like, wow, I'm like doing really well. I'm doing better than my classmates. And I can tell that like this, this makes sense to me. And the reason I think it made sense to me is because when you grow up and your main activity is talking and interacting and reading people and that's like all you do all day, you know, like my little visits to Taco Bell, it was really just about talking with people. So you, you kind of build some, I don't even want to say street wiseness, but like some, some kind of, maybe we can call it dirt roadness. <laughs> you know, you start, you start building some intelligence um, and, and you probably noticed this guy, like when you were down at college, if you met another youper, it was like immediately you could kind of like talk and click with them. Yeah. And it, and it felt, it was more than just like, oh, we both, you know, have a connection. It was like, we naturally know to be friendly and interact and like we can build a relationship very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think that that ended up lending itself exceptionally well to counseling later on, which I, you know, I didn't anticipate, obviously, you know, I know a lot of my story here has been like falling into things and having them work out. So. <laughs> well, and, and that's okay. I mean, it, it, I don't know how many episodes of the podcast you've listened to, but a lot of people that have shared their story with me, it's, it's been a lot less planning and more so, like you said, kind of like falling into to certain places and opportunities, um, kind of following that, that, that theme, I guess. So it, when you graduated in 2008, you ended up heading to the University of North Dakota, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so um, the, the reason I went there was not, again, not because I had this passion for North Dakota and I just had to be <laughs> there. You know, it was a hot place to be, you know. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was because, uh, you know, they, what, I, what I really wanted to study was some kind of place where they integrated psychology and sociology. And... Uh, you know, I started looking at schools and there was a, because of where I grew up, I had this innate interest in poverty and specifically rural poverty and growing up in rural Michigan, you know, where, what I always say to people when I describe growing up in Michigan and when it, when it comes to my research, which I, I studied poverty mainly and, and economic inequality is like, if a factory goes down in Detroit, there's still 50 more factories. If a factory goes down in Iron Mountain, Michigan, like literally a third of the town may go away. Absolutely. And, and that's right. something that I don't think a lot of people really talk about. I mean, it's easy to kind of look at the UP with rose colored glasses and, and talk about what a quaint ideal like place it is to grow up. But there's definitely that, like you just said that economic poverty, if, if you know, people losing jobs, unemployment, it, it's, it's a, yeah. an absolute reality to, to the way of life up here. Yeah, I had this um I had this very bizarre event. I was attending this rural psychology conference in Anchorage, Alaska, right? Okay. And so so I'm up there and I'm like, you know, sitting, you know, you go if you've ever been to a conference before, you go to like symposium after symposium and I walk into this symposium and it it says uh, rural study rural research on economic development in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Wow. Wow, I'm like going to go to this for sure. And I walk in and guess where he's studying? He's studying 
um, Iron Mountain, Michigan, of all places, and he's specifically studying um, the Quinnipiac Mill. Wow. And the effects of the, or not the Quinnipiac, um, the Niagara Mill. Yeah. So for those who don't know, Niagara, Wisconsin is right on the border of Iron Mountain, Michigan. Uh, yep. Niagara Mill closed down in what, like 2004 or 2005 or something like that? Um, it, no, it was because I actually, yeah. I spent summers working at the Niagara Paper Mill. If, wow, if you, really? If you, yeah. If you had a family member that worked at the mill, college kids, it, they like drew names out of a hat, but they would take X amount of college kids every year and you could work there. So I worked there from the summer of... 2005 to I want to say we shut it down in 2008. Wow, really? What was it like working there? It was an awesome experience from the standpoint of learning like work ethic and 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 taking me out of my comfort zone because I was never like growing up I was never like a super like I didn't take building trades. I didn't learn yeah. how to like build a lot of stuff with my hands or, or be real like crafty in, in that sense. Yeah. Um, so it was really good at kind of teaching me work ethic and, and kind of learning just a lot of stuff that I would have never really ever kind of come across. Um, it was definitely hard work. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. So what was your actual, like, what were you doing? What was your actual job there? So I was on the paper winder. So basically after it runs through and they put it on really big spools yeah. and the orders that we have is you have to like run it through a machine that cuts it and puts it on a smaller spool. Um, and when I say smaller, it might be this, the cardboard spool might be like, let's just say three feet wide, but the spool that you cut, it might be, or the paper, once it winds up on there might be, you know, three feet tall. So it's a big reel of paper. So my job was basically, you have to tail the, the, the paper through the machine, put it onto this spool or tape it to this cardboard spool. And then the machine winds it up. And Whoa. yeah. And then when it comes off of there, you've got to cut it off tape it down, stencil the side of it, roll it onto a conveyor belt, and then a conveyor takes it to where they package it oh, up. And crap. So you were doing like literal assembly line labor. Yeah. And, uh, oh, you burned it, your Detroit hat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was, you know, I was, I was right on the crew. Um, I was basically there so that somebody could be on vacation. So it was, uh, you know, um, like 12 hour shifts and we would work three days on three days off and you'd switch between days and midnights. Wow. 12 hour shifts doing that all day. Yeah. 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 So oh it, like I said, it was, it was intense. Um, I probably missed out on a lot of like fun stuff going on in the summers, but at the same time I was making what the person that was working that spot normally would make. So I made enough money working really hard through the summers that I didn't have to have a job like during the college year while I was at school, I would make That's enough. Incredible. Yeah. So it was, it was very interesting. Um, but it was, it was, um, very, uh, hardworking and I worked with some really, really great guys. Um, but every single yeah. one of them all summer long would be like, get your degree, you know, don't rely on this place. I, I know the money is super tempting, yeah. you know, and, and not to say that a four-year degree is everything. I mean, it, there's a lot of great jobs out there that, you know, don't involve getting a college degree, but they just basically were trying to get across to me. Don't, don't let the money lure you into working here because 
I mean, we were with each other more wow. than, than you'd see your own family. I mean, really, when you do the hours, yeah. you're with those people more than, than family and friends. So it, it taught me a lot, but it also gave me the, the drive to want to really do something else with my life besides just working in a paper mill. Whoa. So, yeah. So, I, whoa. Thank you for telling me that story. That's awesome. I mean, that's an incredible thing. That's like the kind of thing, you know, you could you write a little like memoir about or something. That's yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah. So I'm, I'm up in Alaska, right? And I'm like listening to this uh, guy talk about, and he's literally talking about the effects on the city of Niagara and Iron Mountain from the, Quint or from the, the Niagara paper mill closing. And it showed like he interviewed people like over a number of years as the pro like as it sold to different people. And you can see their hopes in the interviews like die. And like their first they're like, no, somebody else is going to buy it and it's going to be okay. And then later it's like, no, it's not. And then it slowly gets to like, I'm leaving. Sure. Unity. So, you know, seeing things like that happen or, you know, over by my house uh, in, in the north side of Iron Mountain, you know, like the Corey Furniture Factory going under, or, you know, seeing things like that, that, that was interesting to me that, you know, that nobody feels like they're really focusing on this. Um, so anyway, I wanted to go out to North Dakota because that there, they had this focus on psychology and specifically applied to rural poverty. Uh, and that was really interesting. So I ended up going up there and interviewing literally the first time I had ever been on an airplane was my flight for my grad school interview to Grand Forks, North Dakota. Wow. <laughs> yeah, if you can believe that. So went out there, interviewed, thought the interview went terrible, thought there was like zero chance that I would get in or anything. And, you know, in a PhD programs are nuts. Scott. I don't know if you know this, but like they, you know, they'll interview a hundred people and they'll take five. Wow, I did not know that. You know, it's it's craziness, and it's even worse nowadays. I think on my PhD for the PhD program I teach in right now, this year they had two hundred and ten applicants for ten spots. Wow, I mean it's just crazy. And you know, we ended up you end up getting the top four or five percent of yeah who end up accepting. But anyway, so I, I go out there and I interview and you know, I didn't feel like it went especially well. And I, you know, I, I was able to talk about my stuff, but my advice, who the woman, Dr. Cindy Juttman, who later on ended up being my advisor, I could tell she and I connected. And I knew that we, I was like, if I got a chance, it's going to be through that. And sure enough, like, you know, two, three weeks later, all of a sudden I get an email and it says, Hey Kip, um, you know, you right now we've deemed you an alternate. Uh, but it was like giant capitalized bolded butt and it says but there is a strong possibility we will be making you an offer and literally the next day uh they made me an offer and what happens when that happens is you know they accept the you know the first five or six people or whatever and then usually somebody the top one or two people get multiple offers so they sure. hold an offer and then they let it go so i ended up getting in the next day and all of a sudden, uh, you know, it, this is again how low my literacy was. I also had got into Marquette University uh, in Milwaukee, but for a master's degree. Okay. Right? And I, this is how, you know, I just didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I was like, which one should I do? Like, <laughs> you know, like the doctorate or Marquette. And, you know, it's like you start asking people and people are like, well, Marquette's a pretty, especially people in the UP because yeah. they know Marquette. So they're like, Marquette's a really good school. Like, yeah. So I'm really thinking, like, should I let go of this golden ticket, you know, of getting a PhD? And luckily, I had an advisor, or I had a, my sociology advisor, 
looked at me and he was like, are you an idiot? Like, <laughs> go get your PhD. Like, why would you ever let that go? And I was like, okay, I don't, I guess I'm an idiot. <laughs> so I ended up moving up to North Dakota first, you know, I literally, the first time I was there other than the interview was driving my, uh, driving my Pontiac uh, Bonneville you know, from Grand Rapids, Michigan, up through the UP and nine hours down US2. And Sky, I swear to God, in North Dakota, I lived on US2. Really? Yeah, because I don't know if people know this. US2, you know, runs through the UP. Yeah, I know it runs, but yeah. yeah. So I literally, like, the, the my like little dorm room that I lived in the first year was on US2. So I so- never got off the road. <laughs> So, so a PhD program and, and if I'm being naive, I apologize. Cause I, obviously I, I've never gone for a PhD or anything like that. Yeah. Is, is this like strictly where you're just like working on a thesis or do you have like a dissertation or I guess what, what goes yeah. into. So there's, there's two ways you can enter it into a PhD program. There's, there's either post undergrad PhD or post masters. Okay? okay. So most people who do it, tend to tend to have their masters first and then they go get the PhD but because I was going straight from undergrad you you have to take all the master's level classes first because they basically want to get you up to the master's degree folks so you end up doing it in kind of an expedited fashion so my school had a master's program in counseling like and a PhD program all in the same department so they basically put me through the master's program in counseling and okay. so I ended up getting a master's degree in community counseling. And with that, um, you're, you're doing a little bit of, I was like a TA because I was still a PhD student. So I was like teaching a little bit and I was doing research with my advisor on rural poverty, which was really great. Um, and I ended up doing like, we, we didn't call it a thesis in my department. We called it an independent study. And it was right during the height of the, the, uh, the recession. And so what I actually did was I ended up comparing uh, stress levels and support levels in Michigan versus North Dakota. And the reason I did those two states was because Michigan was one of the worst states hit during the recession, if not the worst state. And North Dakota had an oil boom. Oh, yeah, that's it. Oh, yeah, that's right. So North Dakota was actually growing during the recession, which was insanity. We have we have like our unemployment rate was lower than it had ever been. And so there was this dichotomy kind of going on between the two states. So it presented this really beautiful opportunity to examine like one state that's like on the rise and the other states on the, and they're both very rural. Right. So I was able to examine the people in each one. And actually what I ended up finding was there was no difference between the two states, which is shocking when you think about it, but where the difference was, were, was between the cities and the rural areas. Sure. Rural areas felt dramatically more stressed out compared to the people in, like, so you know, Detroit versus Baraga, Michigan. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, you know, Baraga, Michigan had a, a almost a forty percent unemployment rate during the recession. So you know, it was very intense. You know, in Detroit, you know, they're freaking out because they're at ten percent. Right. Right. <laughs> while Baraga is four times what you know what they're experiencing. So. Yeah, so I ended up going up there, you end up taking a bunch of classes, and then there were like doctoral classes, because there's things you have to like, you have to learn how to do research, which sure. master's folks didn't learn. Um, meanwhile, though, from your second year on, you're actually learning to do counseling, too, like one on one. And so even though I'm doing this research that isn't really re- a 
around counseling, I'm still counseling people. <clears throat> and so what you're doing is you, they start off and they put you with a partner who's just a, another student in your class and you pretend to do counseling. Okay. And then somebody's watching you through a two-way mirror and they give you feedback. And then they let you see the real people and they start you off with like clients who pay like $1. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> talk to you and um, it's it's like a free clinic basically they have to pay one dollar because they know there's all this research that shows people take counseling more seriously even if they pay one dollar sure uh versus they don't pay anything so they pay one dollar and then what they do is what they call bug in the ear supervision hmm. which is you're sitting with the patient but uh, there's a licensed psychologist watching you from another room and they you have a basically a bluetooth headset on hmm. and so the, there are whispering stuff in your ear. So you basically, you know, and it's not constant. It's maybe like three or four times a session, but they're just making sure you don't do anything hurtful or do anything that can be damaging to the person. And they're giving you little pieces of advice. And so you're getting like this very dedicated, you know, therapy experience where you're, you know, you're trying to work on your little summary statements and your, the things you're supposed to say to people. And then after that, you end up uh, seeing real clients. And that's where you go off and do what we call a practicum, which is you're working in some place in the community. So the, uh, the first year, I worked at this place called the Village Family Services. And they would go do in-home family therapy with rural North Dakota households. Okay. So here's, what I, I gotta, here's a fun story for you. So... <laughs> So I'm going out to, uh, I drive two hours out and I, you know, I'll leave most confidential information out of this, obviously, but I'm going out to this super rural area in North Dakota. It takes two hours to get there, Scott, right? And uh, I, I, you know, this is just, people in North Dakota are like, they're a lot like youpers, but they're like, they don't have that Italian spice to them. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, where our youper accent is like, oh, hey, Scooter, how you doing, buddy? You know? <laughs> Versus like a North Dakota accent is more like, hey, Scooter, how are you? <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like, it's like a deadpan version of mm -hmm. you, you know? So I get out there and I'm with my little co-counselor who's like training me. And he's, he's just like, oh yeah, we're heading out there. We're just talking, you know, shooting the shit or whatever. And we get out to this house. And all of a sudden I look out the door and they're like, he, he turns to me, he goes, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, they have a pet wolf. A wolf? What? He goes, yeah, I forgot to tell you. And I'm like, you forgot to tell me they have a pet wolf and we're going into their house? And I was, so anyway, I'm like, why do they have a pet wolf? He goes, meth addicts have been stealing their chemicals from their barn and they, the meth addicts poisoned their last dog. Oh my God. With, with uh, antifreeze in the, like the dog's water bowl so yeah. that they could get into the barn and steal the chemicals. So anyway, we end up going in there and sure enough, there's like this, it's a, it's, two thirds or whatever, 75% uh, wolf. And then like the other part is husky. <laughs> and I'm talking like, this looks like a wolf. It doesn't yeah. look like a, it doesn't look like a dog at all. And I'm, I'm supposed to be counseling this child, like this kid, <laughs> while my co-counselor is talking to the parents. And literally there's a wolf sniff, sniffing my like crotch. <laughs> You know, and I'm like, do I pet it? Like, what do I, you know what I mean? And this thing is literally here to keep like meth addicts out of the city or out of, excuse me, out of their neighborhood, you know? So wow. that was probably one of the rural, weirdest experiences. But anyway, so yeah, so you, you know, you're learning to counsel people and I ended up working there. I ended up working at the University of North Dakota Counseling Center. I ended up going out to this uh, hospital where I got trained in like integrated healthcare. So working with doctors, 
and everything. So you're like tag teaming, you know, for people's treatment. Sure. I had some really great experiences. So how then does that transition from like being in North Dakota to, to doing like your post doctorate, like fellowship at U of M, how, how does that transition take place? So uh, before you, before you go off to, at the end of your PhD in psychology, you basically, if those who are familiar with like the medical school process, you get matched somewhere. And so what you do is you interview a bunch of places, you rank them, and then they rank you. And then this giant algorithm runs and they match you out, right? Okay. So I ended up matching at the University of California, Santa Cruz, which, you know, to me proved the world was fair because if you had to live in North Dakota for five years, you should definitely get to move to Santa Cruz, California as a reward. Yeah. (laughs) Afterwards. So I got, you know, I got to move to Santa Cruz, which is like the complete, you couldn't imagine a place that's more opposite of North Dakota. It's like a beach town with like, it's like the skateboarding capital of the world. Like they have monuments to surfers. Okay. It's this, total hippie like you know third generation hippies growing up there you'll you see like you know 50 year old men wearing santa cruz skateboarding t-shirts skateboarding to work in the morning <laughs> you know it's just this totally different culture and so i ended up going out there and i worked at the counseling center which you know i had this started a theme in my my work you know so well got the i got matched at the counseling center and then uh my supervisor out in Santa Cruz had actually worked at the University of Michigan before she had worked um, in Santa Cruz. So she had really encouraged me. She's like, oh, Kip, you know, if you, you're from Michigan, you should apply at U of M. And I was like, don't they only take fancy people? You know? <laughs> and she was like, Kip, you are a fancy person. And I was like, no, you know, like they're not. So anyway, I ended up applying and uh, luckily, I end up getting on the interview with this guy who's actually one of my close friends to this day named Ryan McDermott, who was a, he was a current postdoc out there. And um, he was really interested in the study of like masculinity and men's issues, which mm-hmm. was also something that I was clinically interested in. I had I'd worked with a lot of guys going back again to the UP by spending a lot of time just hanging out with guys talking, you know. Uh, so, you know, you get, you get good at it, right? So that was something I was pretty interested in. And him and I connected on the interview right away. And sure enough, I uh, ended up getting the postdoc over at the University of Michigan's Counseling Center. So then I was, you know, me and I had just met my fiance, uh, who I had met out in Cal, who later ended up being my fiance out in California. And we were, uh, I was in Washington, D.C. because I was doing some advocacy work uh, for the um, American Psychological Association. And I had talked to, um, I had been offered the, U, the University of Michigan postdoc on my way to uh, Washington, D.C. And they, you know, with postdocs, they give you three days to decide. So they're like, you're, are you going to move to Ann Arbor? <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> uh, I don't know. So I ended up calling my girlfriend at the time and saying, hey, do you want to, uh, do you want to move to Ann Arbor with me? We've been dating for six months. <laughs> I think in six months more you'll like me enough to move and we ended up talking about it on the phone for you know for about an hour or two and she was like yeah I do want I want to go so then right there I called University of Michigan accepted the postdoc and went out there and there you ever heard of that movie like it's like the five-year engagement or something like that I it's not ringing any bells so I got you'll have to enlighten me anyway it's weird because it's like the exact same story it's okay like, 
person moves to the University of Michigan from and like their girlfriend is like in California to do a postdoc in psychology. <laughs> really strange, but yeah. So we went to, we went the opposite route, but yeah. So I got it got to go back to Michigan and you know reconnect with everybody, and it was really lovely. So. So what goes into like this postdoc? I mean, what yeah. what when you get to that point, what what is it that you're really doing while you're there? So the main purpose of a postdoc in psychology is actually to get licensed. Okay. Because like many, you know, professions where you have to get a state license to do the profession, you have to have a certain amount of hours after you finish your degree. So in, in Michigan, you have to have 2000 hours, which is basically a year of clinical work. So you go do the postdoc and then you take this giant exam at the end of it, which is called the ETPPP, um, which is this, you have to spend like 200 hours studying for the exam. So, you know, wow. out there in, you know, my little office in the University of Michigan, uh, um, what do you call the, I can't even remember the name of the building now, the uh, alumni, the alumni house, the, um, what's the central hub on campus called, Shooter, I always forget, where all the kids hang out. At the, like the UC or the student center, yeah, yeah, the university yeah. center? That's exactly right. The Michigan Union. So I sat in my little office in the Michigan Union and studied for this multiple choice exam for a million hours. But, you know, I was counseling students, you know, from the University of Michigan. And um, that was something that was really strange for me, though, Scott, because I was all excited because I had never counseled people from Michigan before, you know, and I was all excited to do it. Well, I would say maybe about one out of six of the people I actually counseled were actually from Michigan. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so what people don't realize is that University of Michigan is like this global institution that people from all over the world go to. And to expect that, you know, everyone's going to be from Lansing or Mount Pleasant or Gaylord or, you know, is totally unrealistic. And, you know, I only I only even met one other Uper the entire time I worked there. Wow. You know, I was like, oh, my gosh, when I found them, you know, it's like, <laughs> who are you? You know, um, so it was, you know, it, you're doing a lot of counseling, you're, you're getting your licensure stuff together, you're getting some supervision, you're getting some training that you're basically learning to teach more in terms of the clinical setting. So you're, we call it supervision, you're providing supervision. Um, so you're getting a lot of training on that as well. And so, yeah, so at the end there, then I started looking for kind of my, you know, at age, like almost 30, my first real job. Yeah. <laughs> And, and then, and, and, okay, so you're looking for your first real job and then you, you yeah. jump, jump the border and, and yeah. head to the arch rival, right? I sure did. So I ended up taking a job at the, uh, uh, I'm going to say Ohio State University. I say the the, Ohio, State the Ohio State University. Yeah. So what, you know, what's funny about the Ohio State thing though, the students, like even the students at Ohio State, like hate that. Like they really? think it, yeah, they think it's like a joke. Like there's kind of like a joke that it, like, you, how do you know if you're a freshman? And it's like, if you say the Ohio state, you know, and there's a bunch of stuff like that. So yeah, no, even everybody hates, there's like nobody who really likes that. Um, just, they sell like the t-shirts and stuff, but they're not very popular compared to like other stuff. But so here's what people don't understand about that transition, because this is just a total hot in, insider baseball, higher education thing that, what makes you attractive to a place like Ohio State or Michigan is if you've worked in a different Big Ten school. Okay. And even though 
your like a rival or whatever, they, they don't think of it like, I mean, in football, they think of that, but they think like, you know how to work in a Big Ten school because they're all basically the same, just different colors. Right. <laughs> like they all copy each other. So I'll give you an example. Like Michigan, the year I was there, they had a donor give $300 million for a law school. Well, Ohio State the next year, about $350 million for a new law school. <laughs> you know? So it's just, and then, you know, it's like if they did it, then all of a sudden Penn State has to get a new law sure. school. It just kind of goes and goes. So they want people who have that experience. They know what the types of students who go to Big Ten schools are like. They know what the needs of the school are. They know how to work like that, like massive level where you have 40, 50,000 students. Um, so, you know, I was really actually quite, you become a very good candidate um, when you do that. And so even the year that I went there, I went down to Ohio State and two of their postdocs came up to Michigan. Oh, okay. You know, so it was, it's actually pretty common. And, but I'll tell you this, you don't get any love from your hometown friends. <laughs> so at all you know and, and it's funny because every student I met I had to cross that bridge with because they would be like oh where are you from and I'd be like Michigan <laughs> you know <laughs> and I have my little University of Michigan like postdoc certificate on the wall and stuff so you know sure uh, and, and Ohio State people definitely hate Michigan people way more than <laughs> people hate Ohio State people like their their whole year revolves around that game Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. So, <laughs> so I, I know you ended up being at Ohio State for almost four years. Were you just yeah. primarily then like working with students? Yeah, yeah. So I was counseling students. But um, first of all, I loved my time at Ohio State. Like it was probably some of the best years of my life. Columbus, Ohio is one of the coolest cities you could ever go to. It's like the it's like a million people. It's, so it's got a big city feel, but it's got small town stuff. It's a college town, so it's got the whole college town center, but then it's like a very culturally diverse place as well. So I loved living there. I loved going to like Columbus Crew soccer games. And, you know, <laughs> it was like there was tons of, it was a lot of fun to, to be there. Um, I loved my job too, because they gave me just an absolutely crazy amount of freedom to kind of pursue whatever I wanted. So they were letting me do my research and they were letting me like I was running men's groups, which I really loved and always wanted to do. So I was basically hanging out with college guys like all the time, which was fun. I would go down to like fraternity basements and <laughs> give like lectures. You know, I, I remember literally kicking aside beer cans, you know, to <laughs> a space for me to lecture, you know, it was, uh, and, you know, you're like going, I mean, you got to think about it, like going into like, you're trying to sell mental health in a fraternity house basement. Yeah, you're in the heart of it. You know, if you're interested in doing men's stuff um, there. So I really loved it. I, I made a lot of really great connections with the fraternities and uh, the sororities even and, you know, and some of the groups on campus. And um, we ended up developing, uh, you ever heard of like the Movember campaign? Yes. Yeah, I've, I've participated. <clears throat> great. So one thing that we ended up doing is we, we couldn't raise money because we're a public institution for it. Sure. But we ended up developing our own Movember campaign around raising mental health awareness on campus. And it ended up growing to be the biggest one, the biggest Movember campaign on a college campus in the country. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So, and I was like kind of doing that and leading that and that was a ton of fun. And um, we got to, you know, my boss, like the first year he gave me like a thousand dollars for it to like put on get t-shirts made and everything. And by the last year I was getting like five, $6,000. Wow. 
of money to be able to like spend on stuff. And we were bringing in speakers and, you know, it was getting really big and we were getting national press coverage for it. And it was, it was a lot of fun to do. And so, you know, I, I just loved it. But at the end of the day, uh, my fiance was a California girl, you know, living in Columbus, Ohio. Um, she's, you know, Mexican American. So she was, you know, didn't have a lot of her cultural pieces that she wanted around her it was harder for her to like get the food that she liked it was harder for her to like you know speak spanish with people which was something she would really like and thought was important her students she like taught in a latino school but it was like a very low income latino school so it was a hard place to work and so she was uh you know we started being like okay you know eventually i need to make more money because when you work at ohio state you're or any state institution your raises get dictated by the state and uh, if you have a Republican governor and they're not interested in really giving tons and tons of money to higher ed, <laughs> you know, so my raises were $1,000 a year, which was just not, you know, if, if, if I worked there for 40 years, I'd be making a decent, you know, I was making a good salary, of course, but I you know, wanted to make a little bit more and get your right. start yeah. to get married, having kids. So I started looking in for other opportunities and ended up, uh, coming down to Texas. And the reason I, we chose Dallas is because I have a cousin who already lives down here and it was a lot more like Latino friendly and a lot more, they had some, the teacher salaries in Texas are amazing. So my partner actually makes more money than I, than I did. And she makes more money as a teacher in Texas than I did as a psychologist in Ohio. Wow. <laughs> so it's crazy, you know? So we ended up uh, finding, um, finding this position. Actually, the position I started with in Texas was not the one I ended up taking. Eventually, I started with a position down here, ended up not liking it and not feeling it was a good fit. And it was just not the antithesis of really what I wanted to do. So I ended up looking around a little bit more. And one of the great things is when you're a licensed psychologist, there's almost always a job for you. And uh, I ended up finding this position at the this like basically this huge medical school in the center of Dallas uh, in the Department of Psychiatry. And in a lot of ways, it's my dream job because I, I counsel people. I'm doing, I get time and money for my research, for my research, and I get to teach PhD students, which you never, I mean, I never thought I would find something where I could do all of those things at the same time and like get paid a good salary. So um, it's been awesome. I mean, I, I really love it. Yeah. I mean, talk about kind of coming full, full circle and, and, and it goes back to what you were saying way early on in the combo about you it wasn't as if you were really like looking for this and trying to get to this point it just you kind of just found it well and because I had worked in college counseling for so long I felt very trapped you know I was like okay the only thing I'm ever going to be able to do is counsel 18 year olds and uh by the way if you ever want if you ever want a reminder that you're not 18 anymore go talk to an 18 year old (laughs) Uh, because it becomes very obvious the difference between you and them really quick and so you know I also was kind of feeling my age a little bit that I was like well you know I've been doing this for like you know seven eight years now and do I really want to keep talking to 18 year olds forever you know about their major and their classes and their you know their and whether or not people are following them on Instagram you know (laughs) and and, uh, you know the people's snap streets being broken and you know, all that stuff. So I ended up, you know, wanting, thinking that it would be better to work with a bigger population. Yeah. So So with, with the counseling that you're kind of doing now, um, 
I'm assuming it's probably with, with the, the world that we're living in currently with, with quarantine and such, I'm guessing it's probably pretty interesting. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it, it really is. So, um, because we really rapidly, the whole country had to move to tell us telehealth, right? So we were all, you know, seeing patients in our offices and everything was going business as usual. And all of a sudden you can't do that anymore, but you can't just, you can't just cancel care for everybody. So we have to really rapidly, we had to move to doing counseling, how you and I are talking, like basically we use a different program, but you know, basically over Zoom, which mm-hmm. most of us had never even done before. You know, I had done it in really rural, really, excuse me, really rare circumstances, like twice, but that was about it. And so it's not like I, you know, I had this very low competency with it and, uh, we were kind of making up the rules and we put together a little task force and luckily we were able to get everybody up and running on it within like two weeks, which was I mean, a Herculean effort to kind of make it happen for the department. But it's been, uh, it's been very wild because not only have I counseled people who are like actually healthcare workers, but I've also counseled people who have COVID-19 and I've also counseled people who are just sitting at home bored. Sure. And so I'm getting these, I kind of feel like I'm like a, I don't know, like a, like a mouse in a house or something like that. It's like, I'm getting these little peeks into people's lives through the camera. Sure. You know, and you kind of see what's going on for them. And it's like, you know, when one person, you'll see them just like, you know, they're, they're in sweatpants and a t-shirt and they're like, yeah, I've been working all day. And they're like in bed, you know, <laughs> and then you see the next person, they're coughing and they have, you know, they have COVID-19, they feel like a leper because people, you know, have stigmatized, if you have it, it's like you're quarantined, you can't go near and people are treating you like you're, you know, like a monster of some kind. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been pretty wild to try to counsel people through all this. I I can't only imagine. I mean, um, another really cool thing, I mean, this is quite an honor. You, You recently lectured at Yale Medical School, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and let me say this again, Scott, this is not because I'm like the super prestigious professor that Yale just was beating down the door to get Dr. Kip in the door, like, please come talk to us. Like, <laughs> this is another perfect example of a circumstance that I just kind of fell into. And uh, I'll tell you how it happened is we started this EAP line. So for those who don't know, it's like employee assistance because we have so many healthcare workers like calling for help and because they're stressed out. So we started this EAP line that people could call and I was on the committee that did that. And so um, we were getting calls and, you know, the calls were kind of coming in slowly because, you know, it's like you're not getting a hundred calls a day on it or something like that. And I'm sitting in my office and I turned to my boss and I said, Hey, you know, rather than me just sitting here, how about I put together like a little PowerPoint or something that we can like send out to different departments because, you know, rather than kind of pulling babies out of the river, let's like get ahead, you know, yeah. kind of know the stuff that we're going to teach them in advance. And he goes, Oh, I think that's a good idea. So I ended up making the PowerPoint and I sent it out to our little EAP team. Well, one of the psychiatrists on our EAP team was like, Oh, Kip, this is awesome. And he sends, then he sends it off to the chair of the department. The chair of the department sees it. She's like, this is amazing. And sends it up to the Dean of Dean of the medical school. Wow. The, the medical school then sees it goes, this is amazing. Sends it up to the CMO of the hospital. <laughs> right and and let me give you this is not an amazing powerpoint or anything. it's just literally it's just that i did it quickly 
Sure. You know, so it's it's just like very simple. It's like here's what here's a so, here's social distancing. Here's stressors. Here's how to do. Here's coping skills. Like it's just that over and over again. But nobody had produced anything like that yet. You know. Yeah. So it ends up going up to the CMO, and then the CMO goes, "I'm going to send this to everybody on campus." So it gets sent out to you know five, six thousand people in one shot, which was like that was cool enough. I was like cool, right? <laughs> started getting because then people started sending it out on their listservs across the country so you know radiologists have connections with all the other radiologists in the country starts going out that way and then uh we start getting emails from like other universities and the schools being like oh this is helpful this is great we ended up getting one from the executive leadership team at southwest airlines wow (laughs) like oh this is great you know (laughs) i think can we use this you know blah 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 and we're like yeah sure that's fine or whatever (laughs) Well, anyway, so finally we end up, I get an email from a cardiologist uh, out at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, who's like, hey, I was looking online for, you know, stress management for healthcare workers and this thing came up and I thought it was amazing and, you know, it's, it's really cool and did you guys develop this? Because our, like, you know, our names are on in our emails mm-hmm. and I was like, yeah, I developed it. Do you want to, um, like, do you want us, I mean, we'd be happy to like come present basically if you if you want us to and he was like yeah let's set that up and within like three or four days we set it up and all of a sudden we were talking to a cardiology department at Yale Medical School uh, about stress management and let's just say I was extremely stressed out about (laughs) (laughs) about doing that how's that for ironic (laughs) oh I I know right yeah that is ironic but you know so we end up presenting it there and then you know since then we've gotten a lot of you know more kind of offers and we've been we're trying to do a lot of in-house stuff so we're talking we're gonna be talking to the nurses for the university uh here in texas uh, the next couple of days and talking to leadership teams right so so i feel like a lot of my job has just become like i'm a professional presenter of this powerpoint yeah so anyway but yeah so that that kind of happened it was quite an honor and not not I never would have ever thought in my life that I would even go to Yale. I didn't go there, of course, I did over Zoom, but but that I would ever be invited to like lecture there. Right. <laughs> crazy, you know, so. So I, I just think it's really awesome because with everything that's going on with this quarantine, there are so many different stressors and mental health during this time is, is probably more important than it ever is. Yeah. Um, I guess, I mean, you don't have to give me the, the whole spiel or rundown of your PowerPoint, but what are some of the tips that you're sharing with people to, to deal with these stressors? Sure. So I think the first thing is you have to look at what you've lost in order to figure out how to fix it. So Scott, let me ask you this. Like your life hasn't changed because you work from home a lot, but if you had to guess what are some of the things that people have lost in this process, what would you say? Uh, well, hope they could lose their job. Uh, they might lose the ability to see family and friends, you know, that freedom. Um, yep. the, the, they might lose their health. You know, they, they might end yep. up getting sick and, and being stuck in a hospital bed. I, and those are just the kind of the three big things that I think of off the top of my head. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's, those are some of the main, main concerns, of course. And I'll just add a few more, which is, you know, like losing your routine, losing like a sense of freedom sure you know, like you can't go to it you can't go to a restaurant you can't go any places 
Um, you know, your kids are freaking out. So now you're, you're doing this kind of work, having your kids at home, you're trying your, your work and home division has dissolved, right? So okay. now it's all blurred together. And so, you know, uh, your connection with friends, you know, your ability to see people, your ability to even have like small moments of intimacy that you can't shake anybody's hand, you can't hug anybody, you know, all these pieces, even things like being deemed essential versus not being essential is a, it can be a really kind of traumatic, you know, my job's not important or it wasn't, I'm not lucky enough, you know? So there's a big sense of like victimization uh, especially for small business owners who are, you know, out there, you know, trying to do their best and they, they're being forced to choose, like, do I pay my employees or do I find a new way to do business or do I, you know, they're trying to figure it out. So anyway, so, so the, getting back to the tips, I guess, the first thing I think is that's the absolutely most important thing is recognizing what you've lost and kind of doing an assessment of like, how is this affected? Because most people don't realize how much of behavioral animals human beings are we really do like doing the same things pretty much every day and we don't realize how much a disruption to that routine can really mess with our mental health so the first thing is recognizing what in your routine has changed so with my job i'll just say you know i'm used to counseling people but then i have all my colleagues in the office i can bounce ideas i can talk i can consult when i now i can't do that so now I'm having these kind of emotionally intense, intense conversations in my own home without anybody else to check in with or talk to. Well, what do you think that does to a person? It's more draining. Sure. Absolutely. Right. Especially if you're an extrovert, which you may notice I am, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. You, you, so I have to first see, like, if I don't develop some other forms of social connection, like, I'm going to be worse in my job. And if I'm worse at my job, I know with my type of personality, I'm going to feel bad collectively. You know, so in a weird way, doing the presentations, talking to Yale, talking to you right now, talking to other people has helped me a lot because it's helping me kind of recharge my battery as an extrovert, right? Because right. counseling, if you can believe I can do this, is just listening. So, <laughs> but anyway, so that first thing I think is first assessing what you lost. Second part is then like developing a new routine, which has helpful things in it. So one of the, one of the big things everyone's lost is access to self-care activities. So Scott, you seem like the kind of guy who goes to the gym once in a while, I imagine, right? So <laughs> yeah. too, right? We go to the gym, you go outside, you run, you, you know, you work out, you lift everything. Well, guess what? You can't do that anymore. So now everyone, all the cortisol in everybody's body, if you don't replace that is just going to skyrocket when your cortisol goes up, your stress level goes up, right? So, you know, we, you have to come up with new creative ways to work out every single day because if you don't, your stress level is going to go through the roof, right? Um, so new, new routine, new working out, getting over the hump of like the fear of talking to people digitally is a real thing. Um, I know the natural instinct is to be avoidant of those kinds of things. It's a lot easier to not go to like the little, you know, virtual happy hour that your work is putting on than it is to do it. But we know that when people go and do these kinds of connections, they tend to feel a lot better afterwards. You know, it's kind of like going to any kind of party. You're like, you know, well, maybe I shouldn't go. It's easier to stay home. I don't want to get dressed up. I'm already in pajamas. You know, <laughs> but then once you go and you have fun, you're like, oh, I'm so glad I went. Why was I even hesitant about going? 
you know? Right. And what's that same kind of thing with stuff like this that we're doing right now, you know? So that's, that's another huge part. Um, anyway, I, I can, I don't know if there's any, like I, I could talk for another literal hour on that. <laughs> so, I, I find it super interesting and, yeah. and I'm hoping that as people listen into this, yeah. um, you know, they take some of these tips that you're giving to heart. Um, yeah. The other kind of interesting kind of, um, angle on this whole thing. Um, and yeah. you just put a little video out about this yeah. was like the social media impact because it, <clears> the fact <throat> that we're all stuck at home, yes. people are glued to their, you know, their tablets and their phones and everything yep. way more. Um, let's discuss kind of your, your video you put out and your, your recommendation. Yeah. Well, yeah. So UT Southwestern, like the school that I work at, uh, University of Texas Southwestern Medical School, like was like after we had all the success, they were basically like, hey, can you make some YouTube? Like basically they brought their marketing team in and they were like, can we do some videos with you? And I was like, isn't that violating social distancing? How am I going to make a video? And they were like, it's okay. We've got special permission to bring you in and we're going to film you from like six feet away. So it's okay. So it was, that was funny in itself, but Anyway, so yeah, the, the videos, um, there's actually four more coming. Oh, okay, cool. So, so spoiler alert for those who are, who just can't get enough of me. Like, <laughs> I, like, I know I found it extreme. First of all, I appreciate everybody's support for those who are really nice about my little video that you can find on UT Southwestern's uh, Facebook page. But I also was like so cringy about it. It was like, oh God, my tie's all screwed up and I look weird and like, you know, but anyway, but so there's more coming out about more topics, but yeah, the going, the video was about the media and how misinformation. Um, so there's a couple of things going on. One is that people aren't getting information, right? So we don't know what's going on. A lot of the information we're getting is contradictory where it's like, you know, first you're, you're going to have symptoms. Then you can be asymptomatic for, you know, nine days, five days at one point, and then it was 10 days. And now you apparently you can get it, but if you get it, you might not never even get sick and you yeah. can still pass it on, which my God, you want to talk about something to make people paranoid. I could have it and not have symptoms. <laughs> right. Exactly. And then, it was, you know, and then there's like national stuff going on where it's like, you have to wear a mask or you don't have to wear a mask, but the old, uh, bandana won't work, but an M95 mask will work, you know? And, and, and so this different, like the lack of information tends to be very destabilizing for people. People really like when you tell them like, do this and you'll be safe. When it's like, eh, if you do this, you kind of might be safe. We're not really sure. It's better than nothing. People don't like that. And that creates a lot of anxiety for them. So you've got that kind of information going on. Then you've got like the 24 hour news coverage, right? And the constant posting on Facebook and Instagram and every, you know, and TikTok and everything, like, yeah, all everybody's doing is talking about this. Well, here's something that people probably don't realize is, you know, even though social media feels kind of new, you know, really it's been around for 15, 16 years now. I mean, Facebook really got going in like what, 2002, 2003, you know, yeah. I know right when I was entering college. <clears throat> and so, you know, at this point, we've got 15, 16 years of psychological research on what the effects of social media and the effects of news media are on people. And even, you know, news media really changed after 9-11 in terms of, you know, kind of the format and how intense it is and how everything's an emergency. And what we know is that people who sit down and watch MSNBC, watch Fox News, watch CNN all day are 
dramatically more stressed out. They ironically, they end up being less informed in a lot of ways. <clears throat> um, and, uh, you know, same thing with social media. We know that the more time you spend on Facebook every day, the more depressed you're going to be and the more anxious you're going to be. And especially during things like this. Um, so, you know, and we've probably, you've probably had these moments where, you know, somebody says something stupid on Facebook and you make a snarky comment back or something like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're all pissed off and you're, I got to take the dog on a walk, you know, and it's like <laughs> that energy wouldn't even have been in your world before if you just hadn't even looked at it. So you, we've got first our, you know, lack of information and people feeling like they're getting different stories. They don't know how to stay safe. Then you've got this influx of too much information, which is being driven by news companies wanting and social media companies wanting to make as much money as possible. And then you've got this third piece, right, which is fake information, which, you know, which some of it is coming, you know, put disinfectant into your body. <laughs> I'll cure it. Or, you know, you, uh, it's it, like, it's causing the same, it causes less deaths than the flu which, you know, and it's the same as the flu. So why does it even matter? And, you know, I know a guy who's 101 who got it and he was fine, you know, and these, these kind of this fake information or these half truths that are then affecting people's ability to like understand, they're either getting angry at it or they're believing it, which is putting them into either conflict with other people because then they're arguing with them about it. Um, I've, I've even seen things on, you know, Facebook about this is all a, a conspiracy by Bill Gates to get microchips in everybody, you know, and yeah. like wild stuff that, you know, so all of this, so what you do is now you look at these three things, you know, the lack of information, too much information and the fake information, you combine it and throw it together and then throw it in people's faces. Well, <laughs> you know, and, and when people are in a panic and they're stuck at their house, it's, it's like a, you know, it's almost like a Twilight Zone episode where it's like, you know, or it's like 1984 where these transmissions of stuff is just being beamed into people and they've got nothing better to do. So they're absorbing it all day. And, you know, we absorb that. And what we don't know yet is what is the effect of all this, all absorbing all of this over multiple weeks and time. And are we going to see traumatic responses? Are we going to see revolt? You know, where we see people go, I don't care anymore. I'm not social distancing anymore. This is stupid. You know, I'm, I've had enough of this, you know, which we're seeing a little bit, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. Did any piece of that stand out to you as interesting? <laughs> well, all of it is super interesting yeah, to me, yeah. but I, I just, I really like that you're, so you're basically of all of this, of this Molotov cocktail that's basically being chucked into our, into our home day in and day out. You're yeah. kind of really recommending at this point, uh, what, like an hour of news yeah, a day? Pretty hour. Much. Yeah, and, th and that recommendation comes from the APA and a few other sources as well that, you know, what we know isn't good is trying to stay with the up to minute. Uh, I've had clients who are like literally keeping track of the death rate every day, which is like horrible and depressing and not something you should be doing. So what I would recommend is in the morning or at night for one hour, you know, go on social media, go on CNN, get an update. Uh, what we know from research, one of the cool things that's happened is out of China, there's actually been a couple of really great, uh, they've done rapid review journal articles because they want to get some psychological information out. So one study actually found that if you are focusing more on local news than you are national news, you're actually going to be a lot less stressed out. 
because they find that the local news is it's more relevant for most people, you know, obviously to your daily life, and it gives you a greater sense of internal control with what's going on. Uh, I, they didn't say this in the research study. This is, you know, my Dr. Kipp's add-on, I'll just say. It's also going to be way less sensationalized. Yeah, I, I, I think that makes total sense. I mean, yeah. For for me personally, I just feel like the national news is just so depressing, and there's so much doom and gloom yeah. that like I'm super thankful to have good old TV six because like yeah. like yeah. I you know I'll check the the TV six app like once a day, and I, I've pretty much stayed off of Facebook. Uh, I had given it up for Lent, and I added it back for about ten minutes, and it was just bumming me out. Like I, I was just getting like you were, you were yeah. saying you see a post and it makes you frustrated and it, it, you're just like bringing so much negative energy into your world that I'm just like, I'm better off without it. And I, I can feel yeah. like mentally, I just feel in a way better place without like that constant like barrage coming in. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, one hour a week or one hour a day is really where I'm recommending keep it local, you know, um, Carl Bonac is not, you know, going after Trump or, you know, <laughs> you, know, you know, he's just probably interested in giving you what the news is and the weather and all that, you know, so. Right, right, for it, sure. It, it is what it is. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, a, you know, that's a big recommendation. Other things that a lot of people have been asking me about is like, how do you talk to your kids about sure. coronavirus? You know, because, you know, a lot, of, a lot of parents are really struggling with both the managing it and then how do I actually tell my kids? So the first thing that uh, I've been saying to everybody is you have to accept that you're not going to be a perfect parent during this situation because the expectation that you're going to be this amazing Instagram mom who's going to put together a full day of school and do your full work day for your kids every day is not realistic. And I can tell you as a person who I live with a fifth grade teacher that she's also not able to put a full day to school and then she does this all day every day and she's one of the best teachers at her school right and you just can't so you know you, you have to accept that some plates are going to fall during this time and that if you're competing against every other mom or you have this vision i'm like letting my kids fall apart or i'm choosing my work recognize first you're not on your own on this every school in america is probably going to have to teach a good part of this year the end of this year at the beginning of next year sure it's that's what's going to happen. We, you can't, you know, I know most, like, I don't know about the MEEP test in Michigan, but we have the star test in Texas, like the star tests were all canceled. Okay. Know, and you know, they, they're, they're not just going to let the kids not do that information before they go on to the next year. Sure. So, so except first that, you know, this is going to be a, basically a elongated summer vacation that your kids are going to fall behind, that they're going to get a little lazier, that they're going to play more video games, that they're going to watch more movies, you know, that they're, they're going to be bumming around and that that's okay. And that's a long term, that's not going to like make or break their childhood. Okay. So let that go. The second thing is for talking to kids about it is I think it's of course important to be honest about like, hey, this is like a sickness, you know, that's going around um, and it's really important that we stay inside. We're helping people, we're helping old people. But the big thing is emphasizing the things that stay the same for kids. The fact that kids are loved, that they're cared for, that they, they're like they, every day, like mom and dad or mom and mom or dad and dad, whoever, you know, are gonna be there for them no matter what and they care about them. Uh, like emphasizing those important things every day, we know has a huge impact on children's resiliency because kids can become either more, 
like damaged and traumatized from big national events like this, or they become more resilient and stronger and more flexible. And one of the key factors that makes that happen is if they have that stability that they feel like they can lean on. So really emphasizing to your kids that you care about them, that nothing's gonna change, that you have a little routine or a little tradition that you do with them every night during pandemic time, you know, whether it be reading a book or watching a movie or watching an episode of a show or something, that every night you got something going on with them. Um, and then take the pressure off yourself that, you know, you've probably heard this in one way or not, another's got, but, you know, we're not, everyone's like, we're not working from home. We're in a crisis trying to work. Mm -hmm. right and that's that's really how you have to think about this you know and, and some people i've heard it's like you know can i even am i allowed to take a sick day yeah i'm at home yeah you are you're absolutely allowed to do that and there's nothing wrong with that even if it's a mental health sick day if, if anything this is the time you would need a mental health day more than ever right and just because you're doing your work in your pajamas doesn't mean it's not work or it doesn't mean it's more difficult you know not more challenging so, you know, take the pressure off yourself, people. It's, it's really okay and careful of what you're absorbing, uh, even from other parents and others, you know, what the teachers are expecting. I mean, you know, careful where other people's anxiety might be influencing you. I think these are all really great tips and I hope that other people find them as valuable as, as I have just kind of even just talking about it, depending on, obviously I don't have kids, but, but just hearing from someone like yourself, uh, you know, who, who has experience in, in these types of things, um, just kind of putting it out there for people, it, it helps a lot. And, and I think people need to hear it, you know? Yeah. So, and that's, that's really why I wanted you to, to, to come on the podcast besides just sharing yeah. your story, but to, yeah. to really give some, some tips uh, to, to people during a time when, like you said, they really probably need them most. Yeah. Yeah. And for those who are out there, you know, who are really struggling too, you know, almost everybody in America, every counselor or psychologist in America is doing some kind of online counseling. A lot of states have uh, lifted their restrictions on like, you know, can you meet over Google, you know, Hangouts and stuff, and you can now in most states. So if you're really struggling, you know, get on site. There's a great website called Psychology Today where you can look for a therapist. Uh, every, almost every county in America has at least one therapist. You know, so get on there and find somebody and chances are you can have just a nice conversation and your insurance will cover it. Um, you know, so please do that if you, if you need some support. Same thing if you need, you know, you need some kind of psychiatric medication or anything. There's no reason you can't meet with a psychiatrist or meet with a medical doctor and you feel like you need that extra boost or support. Um, because, you know, we, our bodies really are being affected by sitting around a lot more and not being outdoors and not walking around, not interacting. So, you know, the lack of serotonin in your body is not your fault. Right. It's not a weakness. It's not something you did wrong. You know, it's just a result of, you know, big part of it's just vitamin D. You know? So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, you know, don't be afraid of things like that. They can be incredibly helpful during a crisis like this. So. That, that's an awesome, awesome piece of advice to share. So I, I appreciate you sharing that, that website that people can go to if they really, really need some help or to, to talk to somebody. Um, is there anything else that we haven't really kind of hit on that, that you'd want to mention or maybe bring up? I mean, we hit all of the, the points that I really wanted to kind of talk about. So, I mean, if there's anything else you want to put out there, feel free. Yeah, you know, the, the one other thing I'll use, I'll just throw out there that, that I think people, it's really, really important for people to remember to is like, 
the financial piece. For those who don't know, I know we're getting bombarded with a lot of you know information. It's like some people have gotten stimulus checks, some people had them directly deposited, some people are waiting for them to come in the mail. That there's a lot of really great services out there that I think people aren't totally aware of. Um, so if you are struggling financially, one is of course like the uh, if you have student loans, the public interest uh, loan forgiveness is you know you're. Even if you're not paying, nobody's pay, nobody has to pay student loans at least through Fed loan for the next six months, mm -hmm. uh, which is great. And if you're doing public loan forgiveness, meaning you work for like the state, uh, you actually get credit for every month, even though you're not paying. So it counts toward your 120 payments you need. So, you know, please, please take advantage of that for folks who need it. Um, in addition to that, people don't always know with their student loans that they actually get six, they actually get three years of deferment regardless of this. Wow. Okay. So if you're, if you're ever like, oh man, I, you know, I had my car broke down and I have a $1,200 payment or a $1,300, I got, you know, I got a 2000, I got to put a new transmission in or something like that. You can actually take that month off from your student loans and you get 36 months of that. Wow. Okay. So that's it. That is my info. Yeah. So don't feel like at the end of the six months that you're all of a sudden like, oh crap, now I got to pay my student loans again and my business hasn't started back up or, you know, so you, you have lots of time on that. Um, and most major businesses too are also, if you like, like for example, uh, Verizon, AT&T and T-Mobile uh, or Sprint, now Sprint and T-Mobile have merged. They're all offering like payment reductions or payment plans where you, you don't have to pay everything right away up front. And most major places, even mortgage companies are starting to do that. Yeah. So just don't be shocked if like, if you owe a bill and you're freaking out because you know, your job has been deemed non-essential or something like that, there's a lot of really great resources out there. Um, and so please, please explore those. In addition, you know, the unemployment, which a lot of people have been doing, or, you know, the, I know those small business loans have been a little bit of a mess, but um, please look into things because I, I think it's really easy during this time of panic and misinformation to miss some things that are really helpful. So um, just do your research on what's available right now. So that's the only other thing I can think of, Scott. Okay. <laughs> well, then I'll, I'll wrap it up here with the, the question that I ask everybody at the end of the podcast. And that's, how do you like your pasty? Okay. So I, I thought a lot about this, right? Has anybody ever said that they prefer a pasty pie? A pasty pie? No, I haven't. I haven't heard okay. that. So, so, okay. So here's, okay. Cool. Cool thing. You know, you know, the, have you ever heard the fact about pasties that like the reason that they're shaped the way they are is because like the miners had to take them down in the mines. Yeah. With the cross. So you didn't have to get your, you know, with your dirty hands. <laughs> so that's actually not true. And I'll tell oh. you why that's not true <laughs> because I went to England and I was in London, England and they sell Cornish pasties. Right. Cause a Cornwall. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like, yeah they, so they sell like, you know, like one of the main, uh, one of the main bus terminals in, or, um, train terminals in London, they, like right in the center, there's a pasty shop. And okay. Cornwall, England isn't this, this super mining place or anything like that. So uh, they've been making, but originally it comes from like a meat pie. Okay. And they wanted to make the meat pie more taller, uh, more, uh, so you could transit it, so you could carry sure. it. And that's where a pasty actually comes from. So um, when I grew up, my great grandmother would make pasties, but she would make pasty pie, like a traditional meat pie. Now, uh, we all know that you're a complete savage and barely a human if you like rutabaga. <laughs> so let's just start there. Well, I, I tend to disagree. I like rutabaga in my pasty. So I, oh. maybe I'm a savage, but I, I'm, I'm very traditional. I like it in there. <laughs> it's, a, it's a 
root and a vegetable that does not belong in a <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But well, you're a true looper if you if you call it a rutabaggy instead of a rutabaggy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And also, like, yeah, even though like even saying root, 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 rutabagger, rutabagger, <laughs> trying to think how I say it, root. I think I say rutabagger anyway, but. <laughs> Anyway, so I like that, but you know, the, since my great grandmother passed away, we haven't done pasty pies. So, you know, I like uh, I like a thick crust, okay, I like a crunchy crust. You know, with some flake on it. Uh, traditional pasty. I don't I don't like the touristy kind of pasty. You know, you go across the bridge and it's like get a pizza pasty. Yeah, that's blasphemy. Obviously, are you a ketchup guy? I'm like, of course, I'm a ketchup. Okay. I mean, ketchup is the lifeblood of the pasty. Everybody knows that. So yeah, I'm a I'm a lot of ketchup guy. Like I'm also I'm also a big fan of you don't finish the pasty, but you covered it in ketchup already. Mm-hmm. Then you put it in the refrigerator, take it out, the ketchup and the pasty is cold. Whoa, okay. Hot. All yeah, right. So I'm a big fan of like the, the next day, like you know, next day pizza, like yeah. the next day pasty. I'm a really big <laughs> fan of that as well. So do you ever order them like online and get them shipped down to you down there? You know, they you you can. Um in North Dakota, they had them. They actually had pasty oven pasties uh, in North Dakota, which I remember, which was awesome. You could you'd go to Super One. They had a Super One in Grand. Oh, Park. awesome. Okay. And you could actually get them, which is nice. But I, ha- I haven't had them down here, but they have similar, like you can, if you don't, you have to be creative in how you look for them. So you can get like a meat pie kind of thing down here. Um, but, you know, it's not the same. Plus, if I'm going to eat meat down in Texas, it's probably going to be brisket. So, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Well, Kip, I have to thank you again for, for taking the time to sit down and, and chat with me. Um, definitely kind of something out of my comfort zone. And, and I learned a lot of new stuff. And I, I, like I said, I just I think this is going to be really helpful for people. So thank you. Thank you. A lot of fun. And that's going to wrap things up for this week's episode. Another huge thank you to Dr. Kip for taking the time to sit down and chat with me. Um, You know, I'm really glad that I was able to share Kip's story because, um, you know, his is a little different than most of the people I've had on the podcast because he's not currently living in the UP. Uh, You know, he's he's down in Texas, Um, but at the end of the day, he's still a Uper. And not only that, but he's a Uper that's doing really great things. And I'm just I'm super glad that he was able to give his advice and insight as far as mental health goes, um, because, you know, during a crisis like this, your mental health is paramount. So even if just one of you out there listening to this episode, you know, has a takeaway or or get something out of listening to he and I have a chat, then, you know, I'll consider this a, a big success. But as he said at the end of his interview, if if you're not feeling right or you need help or you need to talk to somebody, there are resources out there that are available to you. You are not alone in this. Please do not hesitate to seek out those those resources and ask for help because it's it's okay to not be okay and and it's okay to tell somebody that you need help. So please do not hesitate to, to reach out and speak to a professional um, if, you, if you need some help. Um, but other than that, um, you know, as I always say, you know, if you want to give me some of your big takeaways on the episode, don't hesitate to reach out to me at chattedupod at gmail.com. Otherwise, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. 
Um, please, if you haven't already, go and subscribe to the YouTube page. Uh, I put up the video of my chat with uh, Andrew Lacombe from the last episode is up there. And uh, the video of me and Dr. Kip chatting will be up there as well. Um, so please go and check that out. Um, but other than that, I hope you all are still hanging in there and doing okay. Please continue to stay home. If you do have to venture out, please social distance, wear a mask. Don't forget to wash your hands. And as always, I'm your host, Shooter, reminding you to keep your chin up and your eyes forward.